This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and today we're taking a look at a new report that's been published by Willis Towers Watson and CV Insights about InsureTech activity last quarter. But before we get into that, I'm joined today by my co-host Nigel Walsh. How are you doing today, Nigel? I'm very well, thank you very much. Fresh back from a lovely Indian wedding at the weekend, and it's all good. I thought you just told me you hadn't gotten off a plane. It was in Nottingham. Oh, we- Right. Well, you said Indian wedding. I rather thought you meant you'd been in India. All right. I was in Nottingham. I was in a Nottinghamshire wedding. <laughs> All right. Um, and to provide us with another perspective on this is a man who has done an awful lot of things, not least spending a very long time at Aviva, and who joins us now, 11FS, as our chairman. Welcome, Sean Meadows. Lovely to have you back. Thank you very much. Very excited to be working with the 11FS guys, as well as all the other great things. I actually had a weekend of motorsport and motor racing, which was... Equally exciting. Yes. And in Norfolk. <laughs> I weeded the garden, so <laughs> I obviously need to get out more. Um, but without further ado, let's get started. So the industry theme addressed in this quarter's report is, quote, bind issue. Um, now, we had a bit of discussion about this previously. I had never heard that term before. Um, and I would like somebody, I'm thinking I'm looking at you, Nigel, to explain what that means in in insurance terms, but also in layperson's terms, like if I'm a customer buying insurance, what does quote bind issue mean? So, so in the simplistic, on the most simplistic terms, the way I look at it is quote is all the things that we would do uh, day in, day out to get our actual price. How much are you going to charge me um, for my policy or the coverages that I want? And in the old days, I'm aging myself here, I used to go through the yellow pages um, line by line, call them up and get a quote. And that would be my multiple numbers that I would have or prices for that piece. I then might make some changes to that. So I would uh, add my wife, remove my wife, add accidents, whatever else. Um, and not until we had settled on the things and the, 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 the things I'm going to cover, would it be finally bound by the insurance company, i.e. Um, all the updates, all the information they had, put together into one place and bound into a single document or bound into a cover. And then once it's bound, it's then, of course, issued to you as, a, as an end, end user. So this sort of, it sounds like, well, it definitely comes from the old-fashioned Lloyd system where the quote was done verbally and then you went backwards and forwards with bits of paper with scribbles on. You had a final version that everybody agreed on that was literally bound using a ring binder, presumably, or maybe it was in leather with wax and Ellen Lloyd's, um, <laughs> and then issue, as in it was literally issued to you, you were given a copy. A- absolutely that. And, and actually, when you break it down to quote by an issue, it's reasonably straightforward in terms of language of what the actual process you go through. It's invisible today, of course, with digital digital technologies and aggregators and all that sort of stuff. But in essence, as you go through there and put your information in, you are um, fulfilling all those things before actually you go through to the purchase stage. And where Nigel does most of the tech today play? Is it in the quote and issue? If we're just talking about this process, is it in the quote and issue? Or is there stuff happening around binding as well? That's a good question. I think most of it is actually, as you say, in the quoting space. But actually... This process is the aggregation of all the other things that happen. The binding issue and issuing is really simple. Issuing in the olden days would have been writing out the contract, then moved into postal, uh, posting the contract. And now, of course, uh, calling um, your insurer, they'll say to you, are you happy to have all these electronically? 
Download so, them as a PDF. Or come to our site when you want. Exactly that. So I would say most of the technology is actually making that as seamless and frictionless as possible for the end customer. And that is making sure we have all the conditions that you want to ensure, all the information brought to a single place, matched to the underwriting and rating rules and pricing uh, algorithms that you have, and then pushed out to you as your quote. And the beauty of that in today's world, of course, is you can get 100 plus quotes in 60 seconds on an aggregator, at least here in the UK, and more and more so now we're seeing that in the US. And actually, I was looking at something else about selling uh, my mum's car of all things. And there's actually aggregators for everything. So you know, you can go to certain big sites, um, where they buy any car, um, <laughs> there's now a site that will actually aggregate the aggregators and you literally put it into one place and it just pushes it all out to five or six different sites and gives it to you back in no time at all. So technology really and truly is making that really simple. It's interesting as well. One of the things they touch upon in the report, um, which they put under the bind section, I guess it could come in the quote section, is how technology is helping sort of check personal information at the same time. So are you who you say you are? Is this actually you? Um, For example, is your driving license really valid? You know, you tell me you've got zero points, but is that true if I'm going to issue car insurance? Um, And some of the technology, the sort of KYC, AML type technology that's being used in there as well. Um, which means that if you are doing this kind of convoluted step by step by step by step, and actually half the time you don't know who your end insurer is, or certainly I find a lot of people don't, um, at least you know that they can they can follow their own audit trails and prove it when regulators. But there, a lot of that is those conversations around personal insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, your motor policy, your home insurance. There Absolutely. is still an enormous market, and I'm not sure how far InsureTech has got into space of the SME and the big lawyers of London market. You know, you read a lot of things saying. They know they need to have investment in that space. And even in the report, they talk about it. But we talk and I talk mostly about how how tech is helping me as a consumer yes. rather than those small businesses. Absolutely right. And if you go into the commercial space, and we do a lot of work in, in this area right now, you'll see in the bind process, you'll submit a whole host of evidence with your... Um, with your documentation into the quote process that get included as part of the contract. And that might be gigabyte, I mean, generally gigabytes and gigabytes of data that in reality, you haven't got the ability to understand, digest, or understand the implications of what's in that in the area. And there's plenty of insurtechs that are helping people understand exclusions, inclusions, um, and all the things that go through on the forms. But actually reading the documents that you submit, it might be a map, it might be an engineering diagram, it might be um, risk engineering reports, more often than not, building surveys that are PDFs or scans of PDFs or whatever else. And we're doing a reasonably bad job today, but we're seeing lots of people jump into that space to actually say, do you really know what you've actually written in the first place? Just because it's included, are you sure there's not a underlying risk in the document that you think might be low category, but might be a real clangor in there that could cause major issues for you as as an insurer later on? Well, that's, that's, I think, where some of the, the reg tech comes into play as well, which is sort of the ability to, to scan a huge amount of these documents and then flag things that are, are triggered by particular you know, types of AI. Or um, smart contracts, I suppose, plays into that commercial space as well, like having one contract that everybody can look at rather than this shipping, particularly when you get onto like reinsurance, you know, giant documents. Um, okay, we've, we've, we've assessed the process. We understand what we're talking about now. So let's get into the numbers. Fantastic. This is where I stumble over myself, left, right and centre. Let's see how we go. So in Q2 2019, 69 deals with a total value of US $1.41 billion were announced. So that's a 2% reduction in funding total, meh, and a 21% reduction in deal activity from Q1. So 
2% reduction in funding total to me is statistically irrelevant. Yep, but agreed. 21% reduction in deal activity is really quite interesting. Um, so the funding, the value it's, itself has sort of stayed roughly the same for, for, for four quarters, basically. It's been over $1.2 billion. Um, but deal count has been decreasing as we go. So basically the pattern is more more money or equal or more money coming in, but fewer and fewer deals being done. So what, what do we make of this? That's globally, by the way. That's That's a global set of statistics. So, so, so I think this is consistent with what we see and phys- sorry, physically see in the market from the startups that are being funded and ideas that are coming to, to the table. Um, it feels like it's getting to later stages without a shadow of a doubt. So there's only so many new ideas that come to market. And there's only so many. And if you think about fintech versus insurtech, insurtech much more collaborative and need the capital providers in the first place. There's only so much that those providers can then deal with from a capacity perspective in terms of people actually working with those startups. Therefore, if they can't get any stuff, any more stuff through those existing insurers, reinsurers, brokers or elsewhere, then you expect a slowdown. So it's kind of depressing in one way, but you also realise that the, the funnel's full. So it has to be something really compelling that's going to stand out, that's truly differentiated, um, as opposed to, a, oh, here's another quote buying system. I mean, you talked about quote buying earlier. There's 100 plus platforms in that space now. Uh, that's a lot of options. And they're regional because of regional differences. And there's a few that are more global. There's a lot of, lots of people that have pivoted from launching a product to now being a platform provider. But there's only a certain number that you can actually deal with as opposed to going, great, there's 100, where do I start? I also feel that there's probably an element of investment going to where you talked about there, which is the second stage, third stage, fourth stage. I wonder whether investors have just got a little bit wary about putting their money behind yet another quote, um, quote tech um, platform, you know, another customer platform, just because they've been there, done that. And they're going, you know what, I really don't want to invest. I'm going to wait till something is a little bit further down the journey now before I put my money in. So that's what I was going to say as well. Do we think that some of this is... Um you know, with all, all those points uh, taken on board, but also some of this, the insurers, the, the big insurers, and the big investors and the corporate VC arms are waiting to see what's actually happened from their initial investments and waiting to see some results before they go back in again on the early stage. I certainly know some guys in Singapore who invest in this type of space and they've been quite categoric going, you know, we have so many of those early stages. We now need some revenue generators and ones where we're a little bit more comfortable that we think they will get to yeah. market and actually make some money. And equally, you know, you said about the 2% being meh, and I completely agree with you. For me, that's a, at this level, if you break down the insurance value chain to each of the individual phases, it's like the 10-minute abs that became the 9-minute abs and the 7-minute abs. And and at some point, you just get to no abs, don't you? So it's like, how many of these new things can you get to without making 1% better? I thought you were saying saying abs, and I was like, 10-minute abs? No, 10-minute abs. You've not seen the really bad American commercials. I I think I've seen them on the internet where it's like, yeah, I think I know where you're going with this. It just At took me a while point, to get there. one minute better isn't that much better. I completely agree with that. I understand that. Um, so we can look a little bit at some of the geographies as well. So 42% of all insurtech deals took place in the US. That's a four percentage point decrease from Q1 this year. Again, I don't think that's statistically significant. But what do we think generally about the US might be losing its dominance there by which i mean do we think we might be seeing more deals going elsewhere i'm not sure i'm just not, I, i'd be really interested to see this over a longer period than one mm. quarter to another quarter i'm i'm surprised you didn't make that noise the noise from <laughs> around four percent because it's really not statistically yeah. um 
really, to my mind, much different. You know, you've still got an immense amount of activity in all of these markets. And I, I can't see a huge trend any way that's no, not the US anymore, or it's going to Asia, or it's coming to the UK. I don't, I don't see those trends really playing out quite yet. Yeah, I mean, and the reason that that's the only percentage number in, in this section that I pulled out is actually that n- n- the 42% is still by far and away the largest number of any um, area. But look at the size of, and scale of, yeah. of, of, of what they're up to. I, I, again, I'm with you, Sean. I think it's, I still think the US has got a lot to go after. The model in the US versus the UK, still highly brokered, still sorry, agent-driven. Um, and whilst none of my agent friends in the States believe this is going to happen and there will always be an agent involved, I don't see it. I, I look at the UK as a mature market and go, why would it not follow this? And I appreciate in the same way that there's 6 million truck drivers that might lose their jobs from self-driving vehicles or autonomous trucks, I think there's some things in this space that, can and will be either automated incrementally or completely removed because you buy your insurance when you buy your house or you buy your insurance when you get your car. I mean, yes, it will be, my opinion on that is that it will be the, the very, very specialist niches that will continue to need the brokers when somebody comes to you. And in fact, somebody did come to us the other day and, and say, modern art collection, I've always insured them with X, should I be insuring it somewhere else? And we were like, well, no, probably not, because at this point, I was with a guy earlier in the car. He said I, I, he can't get an insurance quote. He's part of his house. is part of an old church, which was like 16th century, something like that. He says, I've got two quotes and they're both high. I'm like, yeah, that might be a challenge. Just a fun side fact on insuring houses that are old churches. Um, you, For most of them, you're not allowed to disturb the graveyard. So you have to be insured in case somebody or something falls into a grave in your land. Like, because really? you're not allowed to disturb them. You can't dig the bodies up. You can't move them. So which basically means you can't garden because, like, you can't, you literally can't dig because you might hit something. And if you hit Ooh. something, it's a body, and then you've got to, like, deal with the police because even if the body's been dead for 400 years. Yeah. Um, so you, some of these types of insurance about, like, where they've built, like, drives in or, like, people have used converted uh, graveyards into, like... Gar- literally gardens or leisure facilities, you have to kind of be insured against something I mean, horrible going on with grazing. Honestly, it, everything is insurable. Bottom, bottom line, <laughs> everything is insurable. And it's only when you buy a house that you start ending up with waivers or this or that, that or indemnities, sorry, that you need to purchase because your solicitor says, we don't have to deal with that, we'll buy an indemnity. And all of a sudden you've, you've got a stack of things that you never even knew existed that you're now protected against. But if you go back, go and go, somehow bringing it back from... Graveyards <laughs> and whatever to the US market. If you look at in the report, they talk about the wonderful lemonade, which is the only example I ever seem to be reading about. Yep. Uh, about, but you. But to your point, Nigel, you you have to believe there's a huge space in the US just because if they have this one example of lemonade, that just shows the scope they've got for. Others. Acro- others across the piece. And commercial, as you say. Yeah. All the examples, we'll get onto some examples later on. There are there are some of the big names coming through, but none of them, as far as I can tell, are commercial lines. They're all personal uh, PH. and I'm, I'm rereading <laughs> the Amazon story, you know, the Everything book at the moment, and it just amazes me that um, Jeff Bezos is so early on got it and thought it will change the world bit by bit, and now it's, it's part of everyone's everyday life. And we want it, we need it. It's a really interesting story about actually if it's not going to change in the States, well, this did. Why didn't it happen for all? Why, why couldn't it happen for, for other people? It's, I still think it's possible. So to bring it over to the UK, 
Um, the UK equaled its Q4 2017 deal count. That's an all-time high of 11 deals last quarter, um, which I sort of think, um, the note I put in was, that is this the UK doing well despite Brexit? We talked a little bit on um, the sister podcast, Vendek Insider News, about how uh, funding levels are still quite high in the UK despite all the turmoil that's going on. I mean, what are, what are our, our general thoughts, given where we currently are, which may well change in the next six weeks or whatever, about um, insurtech funding and Brexit? Like, you know, do we think it's going to have an impact? Are we going to lose out? We're going to see insurtechs leaving? I'm still biased. I'm London is the home of insurance bar none. Lloyd's is here. It's where it all started out. It's where the talent is. It's where the people are. It's where the ideas are. Um, lots of cool things from coming from other places, Asia, India, uh, US, but still people come back to here. And I think Lloyd's just last week uh, with Ed and Trevor and the team over there announced their third cohort of insurtechs going through the um, Lloyd's of London Labs. So I think it still recognises lots to do. John Neal said that from the outset at Lloyd's. We've got a lot of stuff to go after. Um, and by demonstrating their third cohort, for me, says we're still open for business and there's lots to go after. Yeah, I guess I don't have the same bias, but I have the same view. Mm-hmm. I just think... It's just a huge market. There's a lot of money here. There's just seen as a capital for financials, which I suppose Nigel is the same thing. People just view London and the UK as a great place to come and do stuff. You could say exactly the same about the Northwest with Major City and the money that's going in on all that, the Northwest powerhouse or the Northern powerhouse, however you want to call it. I don't know. I just don't see it changing. You know, I think that to my mind, the world just seems to be carrying on around Brexit at the moment. So the the one thing that I, I... Do, I agree with you both in principle. The one area that I am very sceptical on is actually talent because I, we're kind of already starting to see people, and I don't necessarily mean um, insurance specialists, but for a lot of the insurtechs relying on things like developers and, you know, data scientists and data specialists have already uh, have already gone or aren't coming or actually in a lot of cases it's becoming too difficult for people to hire them because, because of the visa situation. So... Um, I wonder, I mean, that that's the concern I have on this is that the talent might actually be the problem and not on the insurance side. As you said, we've got plenty, plenty of people who know a lot about insurance. Um, but on the tech side, we might struggle. Yeah, although I'd also challenge the insurance knowledge. And, and this is often where too much knowledge is a danger sometimes. Almost you want someone that doesn't know the answers to the question to come up with radical new ways of thinking about it, only to be slapped around the head and said, you can't do it that way because it's always been done this way for 300 years. I mean, I think it does need people that are are non-industry focused and maybe more customer or client focused to try and drive debate and stimulate conversation from things that have always been that way just because. It doesn't help us if they've all moved to Dublin for a better quality of life. There, there is that. The, <laughs> the, the one thing I will say about the Lloyds Cohort 3, and I'm really pleased for all of them, but I'm going to call out a couple of names. And Sarah, you might smile to some of these. I know, I know. I've read the list. Okay, so you know Flock's on there. I do. Right? So Ed, friend of the show, big fan, um, drone insurance, and they're obviously now talking about underwriting capability of the platform, back to quote bind issue, as opposed to anything else. So how do we leverage the thing that we built for one thing and apply it elsewhere? So the thing I noticed about lots of the accelerators, and I think Eric's on here from Digital Fine Print, they've all been through lots of different accelerators, labs, uh, events and stuff like that. So maybe to your talent point and and reflected the number of deals, are we recycling the same guys time and time again to go through different cohorts or are they just finding their next um, great album and the next great product as they go forward? I mean, I I think, I think, 
from what I know about some of those companies, it, it is that the, they've actually struggled to sort of find their find their footing. I mean, they haven't struggled to have great ideas. They haven't struggled to to to, to, to raise money to a certain extent, but they have struggled to um, raise awareness, customer acquisition. Um, and going through the different programs, you know, so you Laka went through the FCA and then gone through, you know, an insurance specialist one. And it's, it's, it's a little bit more complex and drawn out because everything in insurance is more complex and drawn out. Um, but it, it, long story short, I think it's a good sign for now. Yeah. So we'll just we'll just keep an eye on it. I you know, it's like, again, as you were saying earlier, Sean, like two quarters is not. Yeah, really but I think to your point about talent, I, I think there is a talent shortage across virtually every industry at this minute in time. Because even though we've all probably been told for many years that the type of jobs that we're now creating didn't exist 10 years ago, 10 year, 15 years ago, we're still not developing the people for those roles. You know, you talked about data scientists. I could, I could probably assure you that every insurance company, Nigel, you probably work with more, are desperate to find data scientists. That insure techs, they're desperate to find data scientists. I don't think it's Brexit, it's just... The talent isn't there globally because no, and nobody... data science isn't isn't limited to insurance. It's limited, it's, it's every industry, and I've got You're one... fighting with Google for your staff, for yeah, example. Or, or, I mean, I mean, I'm working with one guy at the moment that came out of a drugs organisation where he's doing. Uh... <laughs> you mean like a pharmaceutical company as Sorry, opposed to pharmaceutical. like a drugs cartel? He, he wasn't. Yes, he wasn't uh, <laughs> out, straight out of narcos or anything like that. He was uh, from a pharmaceutical company uh, and now in insurance. But it's just data being used in different ways. Uh, and again, uh, your, your, your old lot at Aviva publicly talk about Project Quantum was up for an award recently um, and about a goal of getting to, you know, a thousand people in data science um, in, in that space. It's a huge number, right? So this is this is a slight tangent and then I'll bring it back. But um, in terms of talent, I was reading at the weekend that uh, Eastern Europe is one of the best places to go for technical talent across STEM. And that's largely because a lot of women go into those industries and stay in those industries in those countries. And they were trying to work out why. Partly it's a legacy of, of you know, the communist regimes and that they encouraged everybody to go into these industries. But they're trying to work out what, what they're doing so well that makes women want to go into and stay in these industries. I think Latvia has like 52% research scientists are women. Wow. Um, and it's and once you but the thing is to get that gender equality piece also brings up the, the pool vastly yeah, yeah. because if you can get different groups involved you have more talent. Um, Reminds me of all my, all my trips to India I've done over was, the years. I was going to cut that. So that's Nearly a segue there. I, I was well, uh, all my trips to India over the years. I was always impressed and admired that many of the folks I dealt with in the testing area in India were all led by uh, women. Really, really, really good to see. That that would help is all I'm saying. But we'll work on that as well. Just add it to the list. Um, just going to take another quick look at deal stage. So just to consolidate the points we made earlier, early stage funding volume hit its lowest mark since Q3 2017, emphasising consolidation towards the latter stages. Um, Q2 2019 saw a 67% drop in Series C, so only two deals with Series C. However, the number of Series D and E plus rounds doubled from Q1 2019, um, five of the five of the eight deals that were in Q2 2019 that were big were E plus levels. So the note I put in there is just this troubling. We kind of already touched on it, but I think it just compounds. I think it's up troubling if you take Nigel's point that actually there are still ideas that aren't getting funded. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's what I don't know. You know, you you hear that there is still lots of activity, lots of new things going on, and but I don't know. You know, is it just actually people have moved where they're spending or where they're investing their money? Or is there just no, there aren't so many great ideas anymore? Have no idea. But you look at the Lloyds list and again, I'd say what, 50% of them are known to us 
in general, I say us, Sarah and I, from the conversations that have been on the show and what's not. So they're not exactly net new organisations. Well, yeah, they must be. They must be at B stage at least. Most of those on that list, I would say, which further adds to the point that they're not brand new names. The one thing that's popped up over the last six months that I've seen a, a more of a trend in is people looking for seed money, and they're not looking for they're not looking for. Uh, huge amounts, you know, three to 500k, whatever else, usually ends up in friends and family and, and, and that sort of stuff. But there has been more people coming to me going, hey, we're looking for seed rounds. Can you help? Where do we go? And I do think there's a lack of folks that focus on pure seed as opposed to uh, revenue generating. We were at Series A or, or whatever else it might be. And there's a bunch now of... Um, uh, seed clubs or angel clubs that are getting together that focus just on InsureTech to work out where and how they put the money into them. Nigel, totally in agreement with that. I, I, I'm a partner in an M&A firm, um, which we work in the creative and tech sector. Uh, I, if we could find a lovely home for all of the people who want 300,000 or 500,000, to your point, clubs, that just is a really difficult place for people to go. And, you, you know, there's only so much family and friend money, I'm sure, yeah. around to do this stuff. Yeah. And I think it, it's a real gap in the market at the minute. Well, it's also, I think people don't understand, a lot of people who have a little bit of money who would like to invest and who are maybe doing things like using, you know, Free Trade or Robinhood to do stock trading. In this country, as far as I understand it, you know much more about this than I do, but there are tax breaks if you're going to put money into angel investing. So if you are a person who's lucky enough to have a bit of disposable income and want to know what to do with it, then, you know, investing in seed stage companies that are you know, domestically grown, if that's your interest, or InsureTech, if that's your interest. Um, surely we should be encouraging more of that as well. Totally. You know, you get, I can't, EIS, I don't know what they stand, the letters stand for, but you do get really good tax breaks. So I don't know why people do it. You know, I, I have a few, I call them donations, because I'm never quite sure you're ever going <laughs> to get, get your back. money back. Um, but you still do it. You know, you yeah. do it because you believe in the idea, you believe in the leadership, you know, totally and so on and so forth. That's why you do it. And, and EIS, I mean, I was chatting to my wife about this at the weekend, explaining explain what EIS and SEIS was as best as I know, I'm really still amateur levels on this sort of stuff. But from a tax perspective, actually, it's quite a quite a safe way of making an investment. And if it all goes wrong, there's a a way of getting some of the money back out again. So as you said, it's a partly donation, partly investing in the team, um, but an opportunity to make money as well if it, it all goes well. Yeah, and, and I think at the same time as well, when people are, to go back to the dreaded boo word, people are looking for alternatives. You know, your, your, your savings aren't going to give you very much. Unfortunately, property is is struggling as well. Well, let's try something different. Um, we should do that. We, let's do a podcast on that, I've just decided. There's, um, there's <laughs> Thor is rolling her eyes the, at me going, the, no. <laughs> the, the other one that's, that seems to pop up quite a lot more and more is the amount of government grants that are actually available for helping startups to this sort of stage. And I think 2.2 million was given out to one of them recently, and I can't for the life of me remember who it was. It's Monday, it'll come back to me. Um, but I think government grants will, will, are, are often... Um, overlooked and people go straight to VC or Angel or whatever else. And actually there's plenty of money out there or was um, for startups to go and whether it's in the north or out to, you know, places that aren't London to go and set up hubs and, and, and keep going. Well, there we go then. Alternative funding sources. There's a, there's a podcast idea and a half. Um, to go back to the report um, and actually something we've touched on already, the, they talk quite a bit about the types of insurance or types of company and in which areas of the value chain um, are attracting money. So distribution-focused startups continue to dominate deal count. So they had 55% of deals last quarter. That's a 7% increase from Q1 and a 10% increase from this time last year. Um, so 14 of the LNH investment deals went into distribution-focused startups, two to full-stack insurers and only four to B2B. Uh, PNC, the margin between B2B and distribution-focused startups was narrower. So of the 49 deals, 21 went to B2B startups and 24 to distribution-focused companies. 
So basically, PNC's got a more even balanced um, balance than, than LNH. Um, and that's any, global as well, right? So yeah, that's global. Any any thoughts on that? So you take that into account and slice it through US versus UK, and the B two B versus direct would make sense because not enough people yet buy direct because they still believe in their agent that lives down the road that they've never visited or see once a once a year. Um, so that that sort of thing makes sense to me. Uh, and the same way in the life and health uh, investment deals around distribution, because ultimately that's what you want to go after from 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 that perspective. If you go after life insurance, then distribution is king, always has been, right, at the end of the day. I, nothing to add apart from I could probably five years ago, they were the conversation you're having, which is distribution needs to be improved in life. You know, it's built, built through brokers, or sorry, bought through brokers. It needs to change. You need to find an easier way of taking to market. So you can see they're tackling what I would consider the low-hanging fruit still in those areas. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is I, I completely agree with that, and we've, we've talked about it being the low-hanging fruit for quite a while, but there are six full-stack insurers in there as well. That I, is quite exciting, actually. Yeah, I quite, I'm quite intrigued by that. I have to say I didn't pull out the names of those six. I'm sure they are in the report. But I I quite like that, that that kind of, okay, we are starting to move away from that distribution focus. And, and to your point, Sean, you know, the market's saturated that distribution end. Um, it is good to see some of those, you know, people who are, Actually, well, there's not. I think of a bit more. There's not a full stack insurer generally because they've always required the capital, the paper, and all the other things that you need to operate as an insurance organisation. Um, there has been oddly, and I think the guys over at Oxbow mentioned this a while back. The number of full stack insurers was higher in Germany than anywhere else. Um, but to see that come come to life now has said either we're fed up of working or waiting for. Um, insurers to help us on our journey let's just go do it ourselves and find the capital to go do it um or, or something completely different but i suspect it's a speed issue i think just as an aside i think if you are talking about um consumer facing insurance or small business facing insurance a lot of people don't realize how many of the brands they see advertised belong to one insurer at the back end i'm yep. not talking about reinsurance i'm talking about things like direct line and Churchill Group, I think, is one example, and there are many, many others. So, yeah, and see. it's often referred to as brand stacking. So, actually, you can price your products accordingly on the aggregator site so that you might get 10 results back on the first page and all be underwritten by the same person, just different prices. Yeah, you've just seen that Allianz have bought, they've bought out the second half of their JV of LV. They just bought LNG's book. Yep. book. You know, I, I just see that happening more and more. And I, and I wonder whether even some of these full stack insurers will eventually just become, as you say, Nigel, just another element of a brand. So, so then the question goes to, at what point or what scale do these guys need to get to to prove a point that says, pause what we're doing, we'll acquire by a major carrier, um, or we use their new non-legacy, non-riddled with 300 years of history um, estate and migrate to that rather than start and rebuild our transformation of our existing sets. So to draw a comparison between insurance and the banking market, um, particularly in the UK, which is the one I know best, if you look at the likes of Monzo, so Monzo's got 2.5 million accounts. Um, they're making some money, not all that much money. They are, have sort of stopped losing money, which is, you know, um, well, on, on some part of their business anyway. So that's progress. Um, but there's a lot of conversations there as well, which which in my mind, there's a similarity. Like, do, are they going to be acquired? So for example, and I knew nothing, this is a completely come out of my head so please don't anybody write in if monzo were to be acquired by lloyd's exactly the same question what would they do would they keep the monzo brand or would they move all of lloyd's estate over to that technology and i don't think we know that yet and i don't i mean it seems more likely that the insurers may be acquired given the size of the incumbents there but i think we're still a little bit early to say which way it's going to go i, mean, I know plenty of the insure techs that have built platforms that still have 
tens of thousands of customers in the first couple of years and they're great and they're doing a good job and they're expanding but you still go to one of the giants sure you know where you were there's still 36 million customers plus and at what point does the two and a half million at monzo or the 775,000 at starling whatever they might be make a material enough impact to go we've got it we'll move across to that or so I wonder if there's something here about regulation and sort of, you know, the, the big banks in the UK being forced to split those brands back out again. So TSB, you know, Lloyd's TSB went from having, I don't know, 14 million customers to TSB now has like six, I think, or something something like that. I wonder if there's, at what point the regulator might go, actually enough of this M&A with the big insurers, like we need to break it back down again. I mean, I, I use these numbers quite a bit around the neobanks and the startups in that space because I think it makes an interesting comparison to insurtechs who I don't think have enjoyed the same number or volume of customers. I think even Lemonade has got 450,000-ish customers or 500,000 customers from memory. So in comparison to a Monzo or to Revolut with 4 million these days, it's four million accounts. Right, okay. So they're okay. use, at least with insurance, you know, that somebody's bought something once. And this is the debate we had all the time, because within a bank account, you might have multiple, you have Starling, Monzo, Revolut, and only ever use all three of those as your secondary account, whereas you're not likely to insure your car yeah. twice. But usually, to, the, to that point, though, if you look at why do people acquire, why would a big insurer buy one of these or acquire one of these stacks? It would either be through increased access to consumers, to your point, Nigel, why, if they've already got 30 million and they, these have got 50,000, yeah. was distribution. Again, why would they do it? Some, or it gets down to technology. So yeah. they'd be buying them, name, more, I would suggest, for the technology. You know, yeah. How can we move a step forward in our technology platform to get to the customers quicker and, and yeah. um, cheaper? Now, and I know we're on a tangent, so you're going to kill me in a second. But actually, interestingly, and I think this is where the market's going to still go, there was a report last week by Clyde & Co., that talked about M&A and insurance being at its highest level in four years. And the number of deals went up to 222 M&A transactions worldwide in the first half of 2019. And our, our trends from what we see internally are it's only going to continue. So it's actually M&A doesn't necessarily have to be um, large carrier to large carrier. It could be let's go acquire um, or acqui hire if it's, if it's a talent issue um, or go and hire technology st- stacks from um organizations out there they've got things that we just can't build quickly enough so should we have some really big numbers should we should we talk about the biggest numbers <laughs> go for it um so q2 2019 recorded nine deals of more than 40 million us dollars um one less than the high of 10 in q1 2019 so <clears throat> the biggest ones uh, the biggest one we've already mentioned was lemonade which raised 300 million in a series d and um, it's now raised a total of 480 million uh, the next biggest was a $205 million Series E investment in Collective Health, um, which is an integrated software platform for employers to help administer benefit plans. Um, so that means Collective Health has now raised a total of $434 million, so not far off Lemonade. Um, and then the third biggest um, is $152 million Series F for Policy Bazaar, which is um, an Indian comparison website, but they do some of their own insurance as well. In fact, we've interviewed uh, their CEO on the show before. Um, that company's now raised $250 million. Um, I mean, this, this kind of makes sense given the earlier numbers, right, that, that, that we've had a few raising monster rounds. Um, do we have any thoughts on these companies in particular? I know we've already touched on Lemonade. Um, I loved reading about Policy Bazaar. 
thought, how cool in the Indian market. That was such a cool. And I can see, I was amazed they're the lowest investment because I can see that. And when you think how big that market is, that so has to be a winner. And and then the stuff, we were talking to to them about the health insurance and, you know, the way that the Indian health system works is um, is, is completely mind-boggling. But, you know, there's there's so many people out there who don't have health insurance. The way they're going about it, everybody has a smartphone. It's such a huge market. Um, I, I wonder if they've raised less money because you can do more with less money. Maybe, maybe? Yeah, I don't actually it. know if that's true. The or accessible not. <laughs> market of what, 1.3 billion people out there. Um, shout out to Rahul, who's a big fan of the show, uh, does a lot of stuff tracking the Indian startups and that sort of stuff. So um, there is a massive opportunity. As I say, 1.3 billion people, even if you profile it according, you're looking at a six to 800 million addressable market. As you say, not many people have insurance today. So you go after life, health, child, family, really interesting segment. And again, keep going back to your old lot, but Aviva partnered with Vodafone, for example. So you buy a smartphone or a phone and you can also buy now, you can also now buy life insurance with it. So there's some really great ways of getting back to distribution, back to our earlier comments. Um, Lemonade, as I said, I'm a massive fan of what they're doing. They've been hailed as the insurtech um, leads and gods and they're the marketing geniuses, right? They've done, I think they're really good at what they're up to. Um, not only uh, to be trumped, though, I think after the report came out, um, se- uh, August 2nd, um, Babylon Health raised $550 million in a Series C, I think it was. They're not an insurer, though, are they? Well, they're not an insurer, but, but you talked about health they're as well. They're a health player. They're a health, health player. They're a health tech. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, I hate those terms. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm with you on the thing, but I, I think health, and maybe we go back to doing another show on health, I think health is massively undercooked right now. So Babylon Health is, is um, slightly different, particularly what they do in the UK, as far as I understand it, is they provide they provide services to the NHS. So um, for those who have any interest in it, there's been quite a lot of scandal recently. So basically Babylon Health has is registered to two, I think, GP offices in Hertfordshire, possibly. Um, one place in the UK. That's where I live, it's not me. <laughs> um, but those two GP practices now have something between them, like 450,000 registered um, patients on their yeah. books. Um, but Hofshire says, well, we can't give you the money that we would give. So that per GP surgery, they get X amount allotted every year for the treatment of that uh, set of patients from the government. And they're like, this is bonkers. We can't do this. So Babylon Health's model has actually been under quite a lot of scrutiny recently. The idea of it is, is, is very simple. You know, you have an app on your phone, you just ring them and say, I've got this funny thing on my leg. <laughs> Am I going to die? And you get into video calls or remote yeah, video t- telemedicine. Or, yeah. So the, there's, there's nothing wrong with the ideas of that. I think just the way it's been implemented in the UK is... But that's more to do with the NHS and the way the system works as opposed to the technology not cap the technology has been built around the existing process rather than making the NHS change but my my point um, that I was going to follow up with there is that that is not insurance because we do not have health insurance in the UK so the question is when is somebody going to come in and as people already do like private health insurers start to you know say to people that you earn a decent amount of money you don't want to wait on NHS waiting lists you know why don't, why yeah. don't we turn here and the other thing I think looking at these deals is and maybe need to be slightly careful with this, but have they really changed insurance, going back to a quote bind issue? You know, they are just, you know, they're just... Doing the same thing faster. Same thing faster, yeah, exactly. Well, we're just cutting down the process. We always have done. I mean, I opened the bank account recently. Uh, it took me weeks to open. I opened my Starling account. My, my wife joined Starling recently, and it was minutes. And, like, why... why? We've created table stakes. There should be no excuses for taking any longer than the quickest one that's out there because you can always compare it to that from now on. 
Um, so what's interesting is that all three of those rounds um, had participation from SoftBank. Um, so for those who don't know, uh, the Japanese firm has recently launched its second vision fund, which will actually focus on AI. But these investments came from its first $100 billion fund. Um, so SoftBank is moving hard and fast into insurance, that's for sure. Um, if anybody is interested in hearing more about SoftBank and their uh, recent at the most recent announcement about the new Vision Fund or indeed where else they've um, placed their bets, then that has been covered extensively on our sister show, Fintech Insider News, which you can find in the same place as you found this podcast. Um, so last by no means least, we're just going to have a quick touch on reinsurance. Um, so Q2 2019 recorded 36 investments into private tech companies by reinsurers, the highest quarterly total. Um, so that's basically reinsurers not investing in insurance, but technology behind insurance. Um, I wasn't sure that was clear from the way I've said it. Uh, US-based tech firms remain the number one target with 64% of those investments. Um, interestingly, they're ramping these up. We've already seen quite a few, like for them to go up and then up and then up. I wonder what the ceiling is here. I still think this is the unsung hero. They have the ability to to enable the direct-to-customer or B2B2C, if that's a, a phrase I'm allowed to use, um, without peeing off the insurers or the brokers or the wholesale broker or the retail broker or the other far too many people in the chain and just and using their capital in a, in, a, in a smart way to enable these new things. And I think actually often the insurer's challenge, especially in the US, is that they're so close to the broker, anything that they do on the direct-to-consumer stuff risks their existing relationship. Here, you don't have that. So they're far enough away to play about, if I'm allowed to use it that way, um, with startups that will go and change the world going forward. And also the... I always think they have been. I think you might just... The unsung heroes of insurance. These are the people who make the insurance market work. Why wouldn't you? Sending a lot of capital go hey, we're going to play in this space. You know, there's, there's absolutely ample opportunity for us to help. Plenty of money. Oh, absolutely. I mean, money's not been the issue, has it? It's not been the issue for quite a while now. There's plenty of money out there. You mentioned SoftBank earlier with their first $100 billion. What was the second fund? $108 billion. It's ridiculous. Money is not the issue. It's what's the slowest path of that funnel that we go through? I often find it's the insurer's capability and capacity to cope with the changes in startups because you can't do them all. So you've got to work out which ones are going to make the biggest impact to revenue, profitability and customer ultimately. And that to me is probably the, the next, and I don't think some of that will come through, but probably in Q2 2020 when you'll see some of this stuff coming through because that's where you'll start seeing where the big big bets get put going forward. So I, I think we've seen, because we've seen a lot of activity from the reinsurers, in, even in the in the direct-to-consumer space. So uh, Munich Re, who have an, opis, an office opposite us, I don't know if you've spotted this yet, Sean, but sometimes I go and wave at them through the window. Um, they've done a lot in the, you know, they've done Lemonade, they've done, um, is it Next Insurance as well, Slice. Um, I mean, so short from Dylan last week, they're all... Yeah, so what I mean, it, genuinely, anecdotally, do are they doing are they doing more investments than insurers? Or does it just sound like that because they are attached to a lot? That's a good question. I need to look at the numbers specifically. I have no idea. Yeah. No, I just wondered if anybody knew off the top of their head. And, and Andy and team have done an amazing job at being vocal about the things that they support, enabling um, the gig or sharing economy, for example, and focusing on certain things. So, you know, I think he, last time he was on the show, he talked about the, the, there's thousands of things that they see. Mm. Um, but they're one of the most... Um, proactive ones in the market you look at the rest of them out there swiss re and a whole bunch of others they are a bunch of reinsurers that are putting their capital 
their brains, their talent to work in a really different way, which is why I still think this is an amazing industry. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just for the listeners, <laughs> Nigel did a fist pump. Yes. Um, all right, on that positive note, let's wrap up the show. Thank you so much to you both for joining me. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a website, a Twitter handle, a LinkedIn profile? Sure. I have all of those. Do you have all of those? Which would you like to tell our listeners about? Um, go to my LinkedIn profile. It's just Sean Meadows. Perfect. Nigel, how about you? I am, Anne. As always, I am on Twitter far too much, according to some people, but I'm on Twitter and thoroughly enjoying it. I will say before you wrap up, big shout out to Andy Johnson and the team at Willis Towers Watson and the CB Insights guys. They do a great job on this report. What they've done for the last couple of quarters is continuity, 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 and they can keep coming out with great stuff. So thanks, guys. And those of us who like numbers like the continuity. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky, probably bickering with Nigel about e-scooters. Um, that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you to Sean and Nigel for joining me today. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Mm-hmm.